All right, let's open to the book of Colossians. I believe this is the seventh message that I've given out of this book. And we haven't tried to go verse by verse, and I know that I'm spending maybe more time on certain sections, but uh, it just seems like this is the way God's led as I've studied the book, so um, hopefully this will be edifying and what God wants for us here. Well, we've said that uh, Paul was writing this book to the Colossians from Rome when he was in prison, around 60 A.D., and we've pointed out that the letter itself can be roughly divided into two sections, two parts. The first two chapters, which lay out the great doctrinal teachings related to the preeminence and full sufficiency of Christ. He was combating some different heresies that were coming in. So a real strong emphasis, maybe some of the clearest in the scriptures, related to the preeminence of Christ and his full sufficiency in all things for his people. Christ as we've emphasized over and over, Christ is all and in all. He's the center of all that God does in creation and in salvation. So those are, I mean, that's just a very rough summary of the first two chapters. He goes on in the last two chapters then to focus on some of the practical applications that these truths about Christ's preeminent, how those things apply practically in the Christian life. And the practical application that we began to look at last time had to do with the relationship of slaves and masters. And last time, most of, most of the message was spent re-emphasizing the glory and sufficiency of Christ, because that is the foundation of Christian living. You've got to have that clear and strong and embrace it uh, to live a consistent Christian life seeing and embracing the glory and wonder of the eternal Son of God who came down from heaven to live among us and save us from our sins and realizing that, getting a hold of it, that because of of who Christ is and what he's done, we as his people are now in a whole new realm of existence. We can't let the world determine who we are. And shape our thinking. We're in a different realm. We have to believe that or we won't walk as we should. We're part of God's new creation in Christ. It's not completed yet. Obviously, look around in the world, you know that. Even look around in here and you know that. It's not completed yet, but it's real. It's been established. There's substantial change that has come in the world and in our lives because of what Christ has done. So, because of this, because of being new creations in Christ, all relationships change for the Christian. The husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and the master-slave relationship back in that time, and we'll, we'll apply it to our present situation as best we can. The point is, Christ changes everything. If you don't remember anything else, there's three words to take home with you. Christ changes everything. All Christians' relationships will be altered, becoming radically different from the surrounding culture 
because of being in Christ and Christ being in them, in the Christian. To put it simply, Christ changes the way we relate to people in the church, the way we relate to people in the family, the way we relate to people in the world. The spirit-filled life of the believer reverses the, the results of the fall. The spirit-filled life of the believer reverses the results of the fall. Fall. Instead of being selfish, prideful, and me-centered, trying to live independently of Christ and God, those in Christ seek to live humbly for the glory of God and the good of others. They desire to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with their God. So, it won't be perfect. We're still battling the flesh. I know that I'm very aware of that, and I'm sure you are too as Christians. We're still battling the flesh daily. But there can be substantial enough change that it will be observable to a watching world. People can see, should see, and can see, and will see, as we walk in the Spirit, a real difference in our lives, in all our relationships. In the Roman culture of Paul's day, where the husband, or the parent, or the slave owner had so much authority, almost total authority in some situations, Those following Christ in those positions of authority stood out by the way they treated their wives and the way they treated their children and the way they treated their slaves. Yes, they did have slaves. We'll see that today in the portion we're going to look at. Though many things are different today, we can still stand out in our culture by our marriages and our families and to make the application of the master-slave it's not totally one-to-one, but we can say it applies, many of these truths apply to the employer-employee relationship today. I'll bring some of that out, I uh, hope, as we go along here. And as we realize and put into practice the great truths about the essential dignity and worth of all people, it will, it will be different, will be different than the culture. Well, let's read some of these verses then that we've read each time just to give us a little feel here. Chapter 1, verse 13 through 19. For he, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rules or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. What's he talking about, all the fullness? Turn over to chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Here we had a man walking on earth 2,000 years ago, and in him all the fullness 
of deity. All the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. You, as a Christian, you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. And then the little phrase that we've tried to emphasize, chapter 3, verse 11, the last little phrase there, Christ, chapter 3, 11, and right at the end, Christ is all and in all. And then applying this then to the, the situation that Paul's, the one we're looking at this time, the practical application, after he talks about wives and husbands and children and fathers, he goes on to, the, to say this in, in verse 22, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those merely pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he, does not, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, you should, that, that's a poor uh, chapter to be in there. Should, it, separates things that shouldn't be separated. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So he's dealing with the subject of slaves and masters in that first century culture. This subject of slavery was very important to the life of the early church. Estimates of the proportion of sla the slave population in the Roman Empire range all the way from 25% to 50% of the population. Half the population may have been slaves. In some parts of the empire, the majority of the people were slaves. In some sections of the early church, a large percentage of the membership were slaves. So these passages relate, related to slavery were very relevant to the Christians of that time. In fact, it's, it's interesting to note here, after he's talking about wives and husbands and children and fathers, he, he writes more here to the slaves and masters than he does to, about the husbands and wives and children. I think it's also significant that the subject comes up in the context of the family. I mean, why would he jump right from talking about husbands and wives and children to, to slaves? Well, I think it's probable that that's because slavery was being dealt with, the, the slavery that Paul was dealing with most often was what we might call domestic slavery, slaves that were part of the household. And we'll get a little more feel for that, I think, as we go along. And I also want to note here that this particular portion that we're looking at today, he's, he is dealing, Paul's dealing with Christian slaves and Christian masters. Now, of course, that wasn't always the situation, and Paul deals with some of the, the uh, more difficult situations where a slave, a Christian slave, would have an unbelieving master. Uh, in other portions. But right here he's dealing with Christian slaves and Christian masters. So I think 
before I get into actually going through this, at least briefly, verse by verse, I want to say a little bit about slavery in general, um, because I think it's important to get the cultural setting a little more. It helps some. Slavery was a social institution almost universally accepted in both the Old Testament times and New Testament times. But the subject of slavery is more complex than it first seems. There were many forms of the master-slave relationship. Not all were cruel and oppressive. In some situations, it was more a master-servant relationship, and it's good to keep that in mind. The treatment of the slave differed according to the disposition of the master and the cultural situation. Our problem is, at least my problem is, when I read the word slavery, I automatically think of American slavery, pre-Civil War slavery. In fact, when I... Uh, read these verses, I'm thinking in terms of uh, black people being oppressed and made slaves. That was, this, that was not the cultural setting. That was not the situation that we're talking about here in the first century. Uh, I just think we in America have a problem when we think about slavery because we all automatically think of slavery according to race as it was practiced in pre-Civil War times. You might even say it this way, we think of it as a black and white issue, and it wasn't. And I'm saying that both physically and metaphorically. It was not a black and white issue in the first century in terms of uh, physical race, nor was it a black and white issue in terms of being just a one uh, one, uh, clear type of slavery. It was very it was much more complex than that. In fact, slavery according to race was not common in the ancient Near East at the time of the Hebrews or in New Testament times. As one writer said, slaves could not be recognized as such on the street. While the slave's life was usually not easy in in the ancient world, modern readers should not read into the New Testament the terrible picture of the enslavement of Africans in the 18th and 19th century. Most slaves were humanely treated by their owners, and the modern reader should not assume that every slave wanted to be free. In fact, people sold themselves into slavery sometimes because it was a better situation than what they had as being a so-called free person. Think about that. That's, that's not the way we think about slavery. I'm trying to give you a sense of the cultural setting because you have to have that often when you're reading the scriptures or you miss, miss a lot of the uh, under, correct understanding. One could become a slave by being born of slave parents, by being exposed as a baby, I think I've mentioned this in the past. Sometimes babies that were born, if the, chil- if the parents didn't want them, they'd just leave them out at a certain place in the city where it was known that somebody would probably pick them up. And often they were picked up by people who would raise them for the purpose of being a slave or a servant in that household. 
So slavery could be entered into by the slaves being parents, by having slave parents, by being exposed as a baby, by being kidnapped, by being a prisoner of war, or by selling oneself into slavery to pay one's debts. Uh, and it wasn't just, sometimes it wasn't just the person selling themselves into slavery. It might be a, a parent or a relative selling their child into slavery. And you think, well, that's terrible. Well, yes, it was terrible. But the conditions were terrible in some situations. And some people actually thought the child would be better off if some rich family would take him in as a slave than they would be on their own, raised in their own family. I mean, that's just a sad situation. So maybe that gives just a little bit of a sense of some of the complexity of when we just... Uh, use this word slavery. It's not, it certainly was not slavery according to race in most situations, and it wasn't like what we think of in the 18th and 19th century here in, in America and in Europe. Paul and the other New Testament leaders made no attempt to directly challenge this social institution. First of all, Christians, being a persecuted minority, were in no position to do that. They weren't in any position to challenge this institution. Secondly, any attempt to directly challenge slavery would have been viewed as rebellion against the governing authority and would have hindered the advancement of the gospel, which is what Paul was mainly concerned about in the New Testament writers. He didn't want to stir up animosity against the church and keep the message from going forth because of, of trying to challenge some uh, cultural system. The way which Christianity would eventually undermine slavery was at a deeper level, at the heart level of loving relationships. As Christians, these these first century believers put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, which is the perfect bond of unity. When you do that, you're going to be undercutting any exploitation and inhumanity toward other people. Relationships in society begin to change as people put on Christ. More and more people became Christians, relationships were changing, and eventually the culture was changing. I mean, when the slave and the master become brothers in Christ, things change. So as I said last time, seeing Christ makes the slave a spiritually free man and the master a servant of Christ. Seeing Christ changes hearts, even if the outward situation remains the same for a while. And people who try to understand, that, like this portion that we've read today, related to the slave and the master, to the slaves and masters, people who try to understand that without re realizing and recognizing the radical nature of salvation, come away with the wrong conclusions. They think that Paul is condoning slavery. He was not. 
Actually, Paul was dealing with slavery on a much deeper level than just the outward institution. He was dealing with it on the heart level. And that's where real change comes from. Eventually, these changes in individual hearts and lives of Christians began to change the entire culture. Now, if you're interested in knowing more of how that developed through the centuries, just let me know. I can steer you on to some sources that, I, that have been real helpful to me, and they're a lot different than what the new atheists want to present in terms of the Christian uh, uh, view of slavery. So anyway, you can, if, if you are interested in the subject, uh, let me know. So with that all said, let's look briefly at these verses, uh, 3.22 through 4.1, trying, as we do this, to apply these principles to our present-day situation in terms of employee-employer relationships. So verse 22 Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So I would say Paul would, would tell these early Christians that there should be a basic attitude of compliance with the desires of the one over, over you, not for the sake of trying to impress them so that you can advance or look good in their eyes. There should be no selfish motives in your compliance, not just to look good to them. But, he says, it should be done from a sincere desire to please God. Any ill will, dishonesty, or laziness of the slave should be replaced by willing service, integrity, diligence, and industry. And that should still be the case for you as an employee in whatever situation you're in. You should seek to do a good job. There should be integrity and diligence. Paul says in the, in the parallel passage on slavery, uh, in another passage on slavery, he says, you should do this in order to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You want to adorn the doctrine of God in the workplace. I'm, I'm making the, the you know, transition to the 21st century situation. When Paul says to obey in everything, it cannot mean absolutely everything because that would include sinful obedience, and we know that's not right. Well, so why would he say here, in all things obey those who are your masters? Well, I think that the main thrust of what he's trying to say here uh, is not that you know everything that's uh, put before you you should do because obviously if it's sinful it's not but the idea is to obey not only in matters pleasant and agreeable to you but also in things that are not so pleasant and not so easy and you do it out of a sincere reverence for God that the gospel, the doctrine of Christ might be adorned. You might show forth Christianity in the setting that you're in. So, verse 23 and 24 then. Whatever you do, 
Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And then I, I like this phrase here. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I mean, that's the attitude you should go into when you go to work. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. If a person truly has this attitude, it changes their whole view of work and service because now you're serving God, not man. You are now promoting the cause and honor of your Savior, not just another person's desires. In that setting, your work, your labors, take on an eternal perspective. Along with this, you also realize that your reward is not what your master on earth gives you. Maybe you're not making quite as much as you should at that job. Well, God's not going to short you. Your reward is not what your master on earth gives you. It may, that may not be what it should be. But what the Lord has laid up for his faithful servants, and that is an eternal inheritance. So, again, as, uh, just to apply this to the present situation, do we really believe, I mean, I'm talking about in practical terms, do we really believe that at work or in school, or in the home, that it is the Lord whom we serve. I mean, that's what Paul says. Do we really believe that? Do we really act like that? For the slave in the first century, this would radically change his views of the situation uh, that he was in. I mean, when you start viewing even slavery as an opportunity to serve Christ, you've made a big transition in your mind. Verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So this verse brings out some of the negative consequences if the slave has a wrong attitude resulting in misbehavior or slothfulness or dishonesty. But I don't think that Paul was just directing this verse to the slaves because the next verse deals with masters. If the master has wrong actions or attitudes towards his slaves, this will have negative consequences from the Lord also. God's standard of righteousness are applied to people, Paul says, without partiality. Doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're or a master. God's standards are the same towards you. So how should this, the master then approach his position or the em, employer in our present situation? Well, he should realize, we're told here in verse 4, Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. 
If you're a Christian employer, you need to realize you have, in some sense, an employer in heaven, a master in heaven. And therefore, in, in the first century context, that master was to treat his slaves with justice and fairness. And in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul adds, they should give up threatening. Apparently that was a common practice in the first century in the master-slave relationship. So he, he specifically says, now give up threatening. Don't do that. In other words, harshness or any brutality should be put aside. Actually, I think what is basically being presented here is that in both, for both the slave and the master, they must live according to the Lord's great teaching that we sometimes call the golden rule. The golden rule, which you know, is however you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. That applies to slave, that applies to master. And that simple teaching right there, when consistently applied, you have encapsulated that which would eventually undercut the whole institution of slavery. You just take that one truth from Christ. However you want others to treat you, so treat them. For that's the law and the prophet. You take that one truth and apply it, and you'll undercut slavery. So in a moment here, I'll, I'll try to summarize Paul's teaching related to slaves and masters. But first I want to point out a very significant aspect of this letter that's easy to miss. I've missed it for years, and as I started reading the commentaries, I was amazed when I saw it. Maybe you've already saw, seen this, and it won't be so amazing to you, but it was to me. It comes from verse 9 of chapter 4, where Paul mentions a man named Onesimus. And with him, he's, he's sending this letter back to the Colossians by this Tychicus up in verse 7. And with him, he's also sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, whom is one of your number. What's that mean? That means that Onesimus was from Colossae. And he, Paul was sending him back there with this letter that he was sending. Now, when we talk about Onesimus, that should ring a bell, if you know the New Testament. Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave that Paul was sending back to his master, Philemon. So, what we have here is that Paul, when Paul sent this letter to the Colossians, he was also sending Onesimus back to Colossae, where he was from, and most commentators agree that when Paul sent this letter to the Colossians, he also sent a more personal, private letter to this man Philemon. What you should really do next time you read through Colossians and study it, read Philemon at the same time because they went from Paul in the same place to the same place. He was sending 
Onesimus back to Philemon, who was a leader at, at the church at Colossa, because Philemon's slave, as near as we can tell, must have run away from him and somehow ended up in Rome where Paul was and was converted under the ministry of Paul there in Rome. Now Paul's sending him back. And to me, this is amazing. He's sending him back, but there's a big difference now in Onesimus. So, the difference, of course, is that he'd become a Christian. This slave had now become a Christian. And he was sending him back to his Christian master, Philemon. So, the letter of Philemon gives us some real insight into Paul's thoughts on how a Christian slave and a Christian master should relate to one another. If you want to really see what Paul's saying in these verses, get down to the real heart, you need to read Philemon along with Colossians. So let's turn to Philemon. Little book right before Hebrews. We'll read... Uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. And then we'll skip down and begin reading at verse 10. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, that's the word I was asking my wife about, how to do, hon? Was that what you told me? Okay. <laughs> Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's writing to Philemon and uh, this sister, Aphia, which may have been uh, Philemon's wife, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. But we'll skip down to verse 10 now. Here's what he's really writing to Philemon about. I appeal to you, to Philemon, for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. What's he mean? He's, he says, he's calling him my child because he's, he was his spiritual, Paul was his spiritual father. He'd become a Christian there, Onesimus had, uh, while Paul was imprisoned in Rome, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, so that sending, that, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be as it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner 
Paul says, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. I will repay it. Lest I should mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. I think that Philemon was probably also converted under Paul. So, let's try to just analyze this a little bit. Here's this Onesimus, apparently a runaway slave, who'd come in contact with Paul in Rome. Through that contact, he'd become a Christian, and, he, and Paul says he has been very useful to me in prison. That's actually a play on his name because Onesimus' name, name means useful. That's what his name means. Uh, and he was making the point that this runaway slave who had become useless to Philemon now was both useful to Paul and to him because he'd become a Christian. He's now Paul's spiritual child in the faith. And here's what I want us to get. I, if we just feel some of the weight of this, look at how he writes of this Christian slave as he sends him back. First of all, he says, it's like sending my very heart. I'm sending my very heart back to you. That shows a very emotional, loving attachment that Paul had to this slave. It's like sending my heart. That's in verse 12, the last part. Verse 16 tells us that it was sending him back now as much more than a slave. Now he was a beloved brother. Back in Colossians, if you remember, he called him a faithful and beloved brother, Onesimus. Paul then goes on and also tells Philemon to accept Onesimus as he would Paul himself. He says, just the way you'd accept me, accept him. And then lastly, he says if Onesimus had wronged him in any way or owes him anything, some people think that maybe he, when he took off, he took some of Philemon's possessions, you know, stole a little stuff and ran away. Don't know about that, but Paul does say this for sure. He says, if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he's wronged you in any way. Now, what I'm trying to get at, think of the love and commitment Paul had for this slave. If you want to understand how Paul was thinking about the slave-master relationship, what it really should be like, this is what it should be like. The Christian should have a loving commitment to that person in that situation that's uh, uh, in slavery. And he wanted the church, well, he wanted Philemon particularly, and the church at Colossae to have that same attitude. So to bring it back into the big picture, this is what happens when people really believe that Christ is all and in all. This is the kind of attitude you'll have in this situation of master-slave relationship. Also, I think it's significant, and I want to point this out, Paul didn't want to command Philemon to do these things. He said he wanted it to come from the position of his own free will. Philemon, I want you to you see it there in verse uh, 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness 
should not be as it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. And I say that I think that's significant because what he's saying is, I want this to come from your heart. I don't want to just command you to do it and you do it. I want it to really come from your heart. And this is where the real help, the real answer to slavery comes. It comes in the heart of people, not, not the outward laws. Leaders can make laws, only God can change the heart. And when hearts are changed, this is what really breaks the bonds of slavery. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Philemon, says, It is hardly necessary to add that although this epistle does not in so many words condemn the institution of slavery, it strikes at the very spirit and transforms the slave into a beloved brother. Transforms the slave into a beloved brother. There you're hitting down at the very heart of the thing. I put it this way, Paul may not have hit slavery head on, but he did much more. He hit it heart on. He hit it heart on by showing what the preeminence and full sufficiency of Christ means in that very practical area of life in that culture. So, I said I'd summarize. Let me summarize what I think are some of the basic principles uh, from this portion of Colossians and then as we've analyzed it in terms of Philemon also. First of all, as Christians, all our service and activity should be done as unto the Lord, realizing that it is the Lord Christ whom we serve in whatever situation we're in. Now that's a big one. I mean, that's easy to say. That is not easy to do. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes a spirit, a person walking in the Spirit to really live like that. Realizing then that in whatever situation we're in, it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. And also coming right along with that, it is from him that we shall ultimately receive the reward of our service, the reward of the inheritance. In other words, we keep the eternal perspective on this job or whatever situation we're in. We don't get so narrow-minded that we just see the situation. We keep the big picture there. It's the Lord Christ whom we serve. It's him that will, from whom we will receive the reward. Second, in Christ there is no partiality or any quality of worth based on things like race, social status, education, nationality, or gender. In him we are all brothers and sisters, part of God's family. As he says in Colossians, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, as I said before, what we're talking about is that in Christ, the effects of the fall are being reversed. Things like selfishness, pride, bigotry, oppressive and domineering attitudes, which are the root cause of slavery. That's where slavery comes from. It comes from things like selfishness and pride. 
Well, in Christ, those things are more and more put aside. If you embrace Christ as preeminent in all things, this, these things are going to be put aside. You can't, they're not compatible. Yeah. Lastly, we should be content to serve Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves as Christians. If we can better our situation, it's not wrong to do so as long and this is, this is key, I think. As long as this does not jeopardize honoring God in that situation. Paul didn't have a problem with a slave if he has the opportunity to be free to take it. You can see that back in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 and 20. Well, let's turn to it. It's, uh, I can't quote it exactly, and it's worth, because this is, I think, an important point. 1 Corinthians 7.21 Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about that. In other words, serve Christ there. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So Paul's saying, I think uh, what we're looking at here, what we're talking about is be content in that situation that you were called. If there's an opportunity that you can uh, take that, to get out of that situation, that's not so good, that's not wrong to do, as long as you can do that without jeopardizing honoring God in the situation. To say it another way, we must be willing to lay down our rights for the greater goal of glorifying God and advancing the gospel. So with those three principles, if we would put them into action through the power of God, it will make you and I, as a people of God, stand out in whatever culture or time we find ourselves. Now what I'd like to do in closing then is to quote a song, a poem, and then make an exhortation related to the present state of the world in this area of slavery. First of all, the song. And I know this will seem strange, but I'm going to quote a Christmas hymn in the middle of summer. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns, and it fits so well in here. It's called O Holy Night. And it, to me, it kind of... encapsulates the teaching related to slavery in, in the epistle to the Colossians. Now I'm just quoting part of it here, but the songwriter says, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, 
the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It's like, think, just like I said before, when Christ came, everything changed. Yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There's a whole new creation that you can become part of. And then he goes on, and sometimes this verse of the song doesn't get sung, and that's unfortunate because it's, it's tremendous. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Tremendous. Sweet hymns of joy. Sweet hymns of joy. In grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. I can just, this song wasn't written back in the first century, but I can see those slaves doing that. The chains have really been broken, even if they're still in that master-slave relationship. Christ is Lord, then ever, ever praise we. This is what the first part of Colossians is all about. Christ is Lord. He's preeminent in all things. He's sufficient for all things. Christ is Lord, then ever, ever praise we. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. So you take that truth of Christ is Lord and you apply it in the very practical situation of slavery and this is what you have. Chains shall be broke, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. So that's the song. And here's a poem. It doesn't rhyme, but there was a girl that I met when I was in the Army, a black girl, sweetest girl you'd ever meet. She used to write poems and songs. She'd sing them sometimes to the Christians that I was meeting with. And she had this poem. I assume she wrote it because I know a lot of the things that she sang and shared with us, she wrote. So I just wanted to read some of this to you. Now remember, this is a black girl. And I thought this was so insightful. She said, Jesus said that if the Son set you free, you are free indeed. For he knew that if a man was free in his heart, nothing can bind him, neither bonds nor prisons, nor enslavement, nor laws. True freedom is not to be confused with circumstances that seem to hinder us in every new direction we turn to follow. No, Christ won the battle of freedom not with temporal results, but with everlasting ones. I forgot to mention the name of this is the cry for freedom. Christ... Jesus won the battle for freedom, not with temporal results, but with everlasting ones. That is not to say that we are not to fight slavery and justice and oppression. Is not this the fast that I choose 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the, undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. But a man must first of all be free, set free in his heart, or he will forever be a slave, though he be free. For to be free of people and all that life brings, to care only for God's rights, and to leave to him the burden of our own rights that have weighed so heavily upon us since childhood, is true freedom. Isn't that good? I to find her name on the internet to see if I could track her down. I haven't been able to do it. The last two lines. And the cry for freedom is forever stilled in the heart of the one who thus believes. I, I just thought that was an incredible thing. So, a song, a poem. And then I want to say something about modern-day slavery. I mean, we've talked about the employee-employer relationship, and that's not slavery. I was just trying to make an application. But there is slavery that still goes on in the world. It's often put under the category of human trafficking. And I just wanted to read you something. Modern-day slavery, also referred to as human trafficking, Trafficking describes the act of recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, and obtaining a person for compelled labor or commercial sexual acts through the use of force and fraud and coercion. There are more slaves today than there were seized from Africa in the four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. This is hard to believe, isn't it? Even though slavery is illegal all around the world, there's some nations that just made it illegal about 40 years ago, incredibly enough. But even though slavery is illegal, there are more slaves in the world today than at any other point in human history. There's an estimated 21 million in bondage across the globe. So it's not like this... thing is just for another age. And as Christians, knowing that we must stand for the dignity and essential worth of all people in all places at all times, this is something we have to deal with. We should be concerned about. Nothing that Paul said anywhere, nothing in the Bible anywhere should keep us or be twisted around to make us think that we shouldn't be standing against the exploitation of people anywhere at any time. I mean, like uh, in the uh, young lady that I mentioned there that wrote the poem, she realized that that's what Isaiah was saying. I th- I'll just close with that because I think it is a good verse to close with. It's Isaiah 58 and the verse beginning with verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for physical fasting in the Christian life, but he, she's, what, what Isaiah is saying here 
is that if you just have that kind of fasting and don't have this kind of heart attitude, the other isn't worth very much. And here's the heart attitude. Is this not the fast that I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see them naked, covering him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what he's saying. Then your light will break out like the dawn, and your recovery will speedily spring forth, and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you. So, why don't we pray? Father, we pray that you would apply these truths and these principles to each of our lives as you see fit in our present situation and in our interactions in the world. Help us, Lord. We take the position that it is the Lord Christ whom we serve. Help us to live out the reality of that. In Jesus' name, amen.